The Lenten season began with the account of Satan testing Christ in the wilderness. This Sunday, the second Sunday of Lent, we continue the theme of testing. In the first reading, we hear how God tested Abraham in obedience and faith. He tested Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the son of promise and the son of the covenant. In the gospel, we see Christ's transfiguration, showing us that through sacrifice, transformation occurs. Welcome to the Scripture Commentary. I'm Lee Benson. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, do everything, do all the things, tell all your friends, help me to appease the pernicious and fickle algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I'll answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment below and I'll respond there or in an episode if it's a bigger question. I do read all the comments, even the nasty, mean ones that hurt my feelings. I also read those. Before getting into the readings, I wanted to talk a little bit about my scriptural hermeneutic or my method of interpretation. I am very much influenced by the fathers of the church, Augustine, Ambrose, all the way to the medievals, and especially the mystics. And then kind of in the later tradition, the mystics like St. John of the Cross, and then in the medieval period, mystics like St. Bonaventure. I'm also influenced by writings like The Imitation of Christ or The Life of Christ by Ludolf of Saxony. The Life of Christ was a very, very popular book. I think it was translated into 13 languages in the medieval period, which is a lot for that time. Uh, the Life of Christ was also very influential in the conversion of St. Ignatius of Loyola. I believe it was one of the books that he either read when he was injured and you know during his conversion, or it was all, and also perhaps, it was the book that he kept by his bedside, that he was, he, he always read The Life of Christ. It was either The Life of Christ or The Imitation of Christ. Either way, very influential book. But I, I believe that there is a incar- incarnational element to scripture, that it reflects Christ the Logos, and that scripture is thoroughly human, and it's also thoroughly divine. God is the author of Scripture, speaking in the words of men. As the letter to the Hebrew says, God's word is living and active. And I believe that. I believe that Scripture is a living text, that it's speaking to us. It's not a dead word. So what we're supposed to do is enter into a dialogue, a dialogos. Dialogue comes from the Greek word dialogos, through the word, dia through Logos word. So what we're supposed to do is to dialogue or to converse with scripture because it's a living thing. If scripture is a dead word, if it's a dead manuscript, then we can't speak with scripture. But I believe that in in my hermeneutic that it's not an object and a subject when it comes to interpretation of scripture. It's not me, the subject, reading an object, but it's actually two subjects that are conversing with one another. Scripture speaks to me. Scripture speaks to us, and we listen, or sometimes we speak the Scripture. Either way, there's a, a two, there's two subjects in this dialogue. So when I read over the readings for Sunday, when I meditate on Scripture, I am not trying to downplay 
the events, events of the life of Christ, or to make Scripture all about us. To be sure, Scripture is about the salvation that Christ has brought. Scripture is about the salvific acts. It's about God's intervening in history, the covenants, the unfolding of his mystery to bring salvation to all humanity. Yes, it's, it's about God. But I believe that if, if Scripture is a living word and Christ is the archegos, as a letter to the Hebrews calls him, if he's the forerunner and pattern of our life, then he's the pattern of every human life, that the events of Scripture in some way speak to me, that it is about Christ, but it's also posing me a question about the here and now, that the things of the past now become the things of the present. So what are, what are the things of the past talking about or, or how are they important to me today? For instance, this Sunday, we read about in the first reading the sacrifice of Abraham and the transfiguration. In this dialogue that I'm going to get into, you are Abraham. I am Abraham. Scripture is asking us and saying to us, what is the sacrifice? What is the Mount Moriah that you're supposed to go up, the altar you are supposed to build? And what is the Isaac that you're supposed to sacrifice. And I believe that Christ's destiny is the destiny of all believers, that Christ was transfigured on the mountain, but so are we. We are going to follow after Christ. Christ is the forerunner. He is the pathfinder. He's the one who cuts away for us to follow in. That we are to follow in that path and to go up the mountain with Christ and to be transfigured with him that his transfiguration is somewhat of a foreshadowing of our own transfigurations. So scripture is never just a dead word. It's just an object, but it's saying, it's posing a question to me. It's, it's, it's asking me to put my, myself in the place of Abraham, to be Abraham and to examine if God calls me to sacrifice my Isaac, will I do it in faith and obedience or not? So with that, Let's get into the first reading. Genesis 22, the very famous scene of the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. Although it's a bit misleading or improper to call it the sacrifice of Isaac because, spoiler alert, he doesn't, Abraham does not sacrifice Isaac. So what most scholars think we should call it is the akidah of of Isaac, the binding of Isaac. But it brings about an interesting idea, I think, of sacrifice. Is that, is it something that is perhaps principally in the heart or like almost up to the moment of action? Because Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. He basically goes all the way through with it, except for the final action of killing. But he doesn't. But, he, he, but it's still considered a sacrifice in some sense, although it's because he sacrifices the lamb later. But anyway, there's also the question about the age of Isaac. A lot of times we think of Isaac as a young boy. He doesn't really know what's going on. But a lot of scholars point out that Isaac would have been perhaps in his 20s, or at least maybe a young man, very much knowing what's going on. And Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice. So this means that Isaac went to his own sacrifice willingly. That's what's implied here is that 
Abraham didn't kind of trick Isaac into going, but Ab- but Isaac willingly went to go sacrifice. So I want to talk a little bit about sacrifice in general and the the meaning of sacrifice. So sacrifice is a universal truth to religion. That in fact it seems like a religion without sacrifice is impossible or unnatural. That it's a universal fact, it's universally attested to when we look at scripture. And this is what Thomas in the in his Summa says about about sacrifice is that it seems as though it seems as though at all times and in all nations there was an offering of sacrifice. And he says that if we observe that the fact that all nations and all peoples and all religions practice sacrifices, we say that this is natural. Therefore, the offering of sacrifices is part of the natural law, things that are universal and are practiced throughout uh, humanity and throughout history can be kind of deduced to the natural law. So sacrifice is proper to the natural law. Natural reason tells man that he is subject to a higher power or a higher being. And on account of the defects, on account of the sins that man perceives in him, perceives in himself, he needs help and direction from a higher power. And whatever is superior to man is what we usually call God. Now, we might be wrong about who God is. Um, St. Bonaventure notes that man, by kind of a natural instinct, worships God. Now, he might be wrong about who God is or the nature of the, the divine but whatever is the most superior thing might as well be God. Carl Jung says the same thing, just a little, by the way. Thomas Aquinas goes on talking about how uh, in natural law, the lower things are naturally subject to the higher things, and the higher things are the things that we are uh, submissive to and that we, we offer uh, sacrifice to. Every, we sacrifice up to something greater. Now, according to the mode of man's being, He offers sensible signs in order to signify something. That he, man derives knowledge from his senses. So it is part of the natural law, as part of natural reason, that man should use sensible signs when offering to God in in a sign of subjugation to him. In a sign of God's authority, we shouldn't just offer kind of spiritual, interior, immaterial things, but we should offer something external, visible, and material to God as a sign of our, of our submission to him. And he says, this is what we mean by sacrifice, that an offering of sacrifice is something visible, sensible, and it's a part of natural law. It is natural to man to express his ideas by signs and visible things. A sacrifice is offered that something may be represented. He says that now the sacrifice that is offered outwardly represents an inward spiritual sacrifice. You know, a, a sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, is what Psalm 50 says. But we offer this outward sign of an inward reality. Thomas notes that man is a composite being. We are a unified being of body and soul something material, body, something immaterial, soul. So therefore, the sacrifice that we offer to God should be some mixture of both. 
It should be material to express our sensible nature and immaterial to express our spiritual nature. So the inward sacrifice that we offer is the most important one. It's principle, he says. It's it, The inward sacrifice precedes the outward devotion. If these are separated, then there's a problem. So the inward sacrifice is the spiritual sacrifice. And from that flows the outward. And the the outward sacrifice can be praise. It can be prayer. But it flows from first our acknowledgement on the interior that there is a superior being to us. So in the scene of Abraham, he was obedient to God and he did have faith in God. But the sacrifice puts what was an interior or inward reality into sensible practice. That's in some sense why we could call it a testing, as the first reading says right in the beginning. God put Abraham to the test that show me, you, you've said that you are faithful to me and, and show me, and, or, and you've told me that you are obedient, but now I'm offering the chance to, to sacrifice the most important thing to you. What's interesting about this moment, kind of historically, and in maybe the philosophy of religion or the study of religions is this moment in Genesis 22 is the birth of what we would call Abrahamic faith. That it is this moment that really separates the faith of Israel, the faith of the Hebrews. It's a, it's a, this moment is an act of faith unlike other acts of faith in the ancient world. That is, it's a moment in which faith properly is really born, that other religions kind of have have a little bit more amorphous understanding, but this is a concrete understanding that we, we offer sacrifice to this particular God. And the nature of the sacrifices we offer to this God are very different than the ancient world. Eliade notes how Abraham compared to the uh, other ancient world sacrifices is unique, is unique because it, it opens up a new dimension of faith that is acquired through religious experience. That in one sense, Abraham's sacrifice is nothing other than the sacrifice of the firstborn, a very common practice that uh, kind of surrounded uh, Abraham at that time. So it's just a, a sacrifice to restore to the divinity what belonged to him. You know, firstborn, both man and animals, belongs to God. So from an outward perspective, it looks like Abraham's sacrifice is just like any other one. So in its form, the sacrifice of Abraham resembles all sacrifices, but it differs fundamentally in the content. That Abraham's act was an act of faith, that something new was born in this act, namely the faith of, the, of Israel. That perhaps, in, perhaps you could argue there, there's some kind of development of the understanding of God throughout the Old Testament. And maybe up until this moment, Abraham kind of struggled with the idea of a, a monotheistic understanding of God. He was certainly surrounded by uh, polytheism and, and pagans as we might understand them now. But in this moment, a distinct faith is born that then, like I said, informs all the faith of Israel. And then from there, Christianity. We say in the Mass the, the sacrifice of faith of Abraham, the sacrifice of faith of Abraham, of Abraham. And this is the, like I said, the foundation. So I want to dive into some interpretation. 
So in the letter to the Hebrews, it says that by faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. And he, he who had received the promises was ready to offer his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. He, Abraham, reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead, and he would receive Isaac back as a symbol. So many interpretations of this event from Genesis is that it was blind obedience, right? That God was offering or was asking from Abraham human sacrifice. That it was a very common practice, again, of some of the religions surrounding Abraham or that Abraham would have known. So the God of Israel, the God he had encountered was no different. But in the letter to the Hebrews, we get a little bit of a different understanding. That here it almost seems as if faith and reason are united in the act of this. It's not blind obedience. It's not simply, this is what God asks, and therefore I'm just going to do it. It was faith united to reason, faith and understanding. On his way up to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham believes that and reasons that he can put Isaac to death, but yet still the promises of God will remain. We have to remember who Isaac is. We have to remember the, what Isaac symbolizes, that it was through Isaac that all the promises of the covenant were going to be fulfilled. Abraham was well past childbearing age. So was his wife, Sarah. And yet they had conceived this son by faith. Everything rested in Isaac. And Isaac, you know, kind of as a, as a child in general, as a symbol, is the symbol of the future and is the symbol of hope and potential. So he's, he's being asked to sacrifice, as the first reading says, Isaac, your only one whom you love. The, the one who is going to bring about all the promises that God had, had, had promised to Abraham. But he was to put that to death. But Abraham, in his understanding, says, God will keep his promises. God will receive, I will receive my son back. Uh, he'll, raise, he'll be raised from the dead or something. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that if God asks me to do it, he will keep his promises. So this is a, a sort of dark night of faith, I would say, for Abraham. Abraham is on his way to sacrifice, but he still trusts in God. He still has faith and he reasons that God will keep his promises. That if we're only looking at this passage from the outside, again, if we believe the scripture is a dead word, then the actions of God sort of wash over us in that we see that God is a tyrant in this moment. He's just playing with Abraham. He play, like he plays with the rest of the world. But if we have this relationship with God that Abraham has, what we, can, what we can do is we can enter into this dark night of faith. The more we become kind of aware of God, the more we enter into fellowship with him or, or communion or, or company with him. We realize that God is not tormenting us as Abraham in this moment, but what he's doing is he's He's asking us to enter into a, I would say, a higher knowledge of him. This is what St. John of the Cross talks about, 
when he talks about the the dark night of faith is it's actually entering into darkness that we receive greater light on the other side that in the part of what makes the dark night so difficult is that we are beginning to be stripped of our old understandings of God and we're we're starting to get a new knowledge of God but we're we're sort of disorganized or we're sort of dazed and confused because what we thought God was or who we thought God was is beginning to change and be stripped from us. And the same thing is happening here. Abraham still has a kind of a baseline faith. That's why you know, we can still call it the dark night of faith is that he still has that faith. But what's happening is he's entering into a deeper union with God, a deeper understanding of who God is. And if we're willing to go up Mount Moriah, and if we're willing to enter into this dark night, we will realize that God still keeps his promises, even amidst any sort of pain or suffering. Carl Jung actually has a big section on, in a book on psychology and religion on sacrifice. And he says that the in sacrifice, the value of the gift is enhanced when it is the best or first fruits. So in this moment, the, the value of Isaac is probably... The, the highest thing that we can imagine being sacrificed. Again, he's, he's the son of promise. He's the only son. He's the beloved son. He's the one who's going to carry on the covenant and the promises of God. So this is the thing of the greatest value. Like he could, Abraham could not offer anything else, none of his livestock, nothing. So Isaac is the highest thing, is the greatest value. And in this act of, in this act of sacrifice, Jung says, it consists in, sacrifice always consists in the first place of something that belongs to me. Everything which belongs to me, he says, bears the stamp of mindness. And there's a subtle identity of my ego, myself, with the thing that I own. I talked a little bit about this in A Monday Muse on Ash Wednesday. Our, our attachments sort of bring things to life, that, that I, I see myself in the things that I own or the things that I have. So Jung says that no one can touch what is mine. You know, it's, this is, everything I own becomes a part of me and therefore is, in a sense, myself. So when I give something away that is mine, I'm giving away what is essentially a symbol that has many meanings. It's a thing of many meanings. And this is because of my kind of unconscious identity with the things that I have. So it, so the things that I own or things I have are, become a part of my personality, become a part of who I am. There is an implicit or explicit personal claim bound up with every gift, with every sacrifice. So the, the sacrifice has to carry with it a personal intention. That's not the mere kind of giving that makes something a sacrifice, but it becomes a sacrifice when I give up something without any ask for a return. As, as Jung says, it's a sacrifice of our egotistical claim on the thing that I give up my mindness completely. So in this moment, Abraham is, is giving up every, his, his connection to or his, his identity with Isaac that Isaac is most certainly his, he's his son. So if the sacrifice, as Jung says, if the sacrifice is to be true, the gift must be given completely. It must be destroyed. 
So in this moment, it's not enough for Abraham to consecrate Isaac or something like that to say, like, I am kind of in a spiritual sense giving Isaac away as a gift. But he has to be given up as something completely severed from Abraham. So he has to be killed, to, to be destroyed. Then Jung says it's possible to say that there's no egotistical claim on it, that I have completely given up this thing and let it be destroyed, and I'm not asking for anything in return. Now you might think, given the inter- interpretation from the letter to the Hebrews, didn't he? Didn't it say that he reasoned, Abraham reasoned that God would give him back? I would say that it doesn't. That interpretation doesn't quite stipulate how he'd be given back. He just knew that that was a possible thing for God to do. And I would say that in this sacrifice of of Isaac, Abraham is still saying, "I'm giving my son up to you completely." I do think you reward. You're a God who rewards faith and obedience, but I'm doing this not for that sake. I'm doing this because I know that you keep your promises. Because if we take it that, or if we understand sacrifice is something we give up for something in return, then it becomes sort of magic. Sacrifice becomes magic. And the purpose of giving things up, the purpose of sacrifice is to somehow purchase something from God. It's to to say that I can in, I can manipulate God by sacrifice. So therefore, our sacrifice becomes worthless because we believe that we can control God. So in order to avoid this, Jung says that the giver should see himself in the gift, that whatever is sacrificed should also be a sacrifice of oneself. So the sacrificed and the sacrificer become one thing. And for Jung, this means that the sacrificer, this is a guarantee that the, the sacrifice is a, also a sacrifice of a selfish claim, that we have no I, identity with the object anymore. We have no claim on the object, no hold on the object. So every sacrifice, to a le- greater or lesser degree, is a self-sacrifice. And the greater the, the sacrifice, the more it is felt personally, the more it is is felt as a self-sacrifice. So Jung says in comments on this moment, actually from Genesis, says like, let's think of Abraham. Let's kind of enter into his soul when he was commanded to sacrifice his only son. He said, would not Abraham feel as a father that he himself was also the victim of his son? And Jung says that there's between, in every sacrifice, there can be a father-son relationship that the thing sacrifices our son or our child, and we are its owner or creator. So in this moment, I would say Abraham is the sacrificer, but he also feels himself as the sacrificed, that he, he is sacrificing his promised son, his, the, 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 the son of faith, and that he, I'm, I'm sure Jung is right. There could be no way that Abraham felt disconnected from it in this moment. But it was a total sacrifice, and this is what God was asking of him on Mount Moriah, a total sacrifice. Now I believe we can enter into this reading and realize that, again, God is asking us to take the place of Abraham and to sacrifice our Isaac, that we can go up the mountain, or we must go up 
the mountain of, Mor- of Mount Moriah, our own personal Mount Moriah. Jung says there's two types of sacrifice. There's the unwilling sacrifice, and there's the willing sacrifice. One is negative and passive, the other active and positive. That sacrifice is coming our way, and we can willingly meet it, or it will be taken from us. That the unwilling sacrifice is seen as an overthrow, a transvaluation of values, the destruction of all that we held sacred. But the willing sacrifice is a sacrifice that is transformative. I think this reading is obviously very timely in Lent when we're asked to sacrifice things throughout Lent. But this sacrifice is, I would say, more difficult and has a, a different angle to it. Because often in Lent, we give up those things that keep us from God, those things that are negative, you know, their sins or attachments or disordered desires, whatever it is. But today, in the figure of Isaac, we see that God might ask us to sacrifice something good, that there was nothing wrong about Isaac. He was the symbol of hope and potential and, every, and, and promise. But God asked him to be sacrificed nonetheless. St. John the Cross says that at the summit of the mountain of God, the soul will be clothed with a new understanding of God and a new love of God. You'll be given new knowledge of him and old ideas and images will be cast aside. The old self will be replaced by a new self. But in order to climb this mountain, the spiritual mountain, that we, we can think of prayer as the invisible sacrifice and that when we talk about climbing this Mount Moriah, it's a spiritual Mount Moriah that exists in our souls. As St. John the Cross says, our souls can be, become altars of sacrifice. But the question is, what do we sacrifice to God in our souls? What we sacrifice is our Isaac. And in Lent, we take this time to examine not just the bad things, but now this Sunday, we're encouraged to examine the good things. The good things that God might be asking us to give up, that we have to we have to take that journey, that spiritual journey up our personal Mount Moriah, build our own personal altars, and sacrifice our own personal Isaacs. And Lent is offering us as a time to do this actively. As Jung said, if we think about Jung's two different types of sacrifices, that something good will be taken from us eventually, but we can meet it actively and offer it to God as a spiritual sacrifice as opposed to God taking something from us. I'm thinking about the scene in Lord of the Rings, in, at least in the movies, where Bilbo doesn't want to give up the ring. And Gandalf says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And I think this is the image of God that we need to cultivate because, as I said earlier in the podcast, we can view God from the outside as a tyrant or someone cruel who is trying to rob us of the good things of our life. But if we enter into a relationship with him, we realize that when God asks us to, sa- to sacrifice even the good things, even our Isaacs, that he's not trying to rob us. He's trying to help us. He's trying to see, he's trying to give us a new knowledge of himself. He's inviting us to enter into the dark night of faith. And in the dark night of faith, as St. John the Cross says, we'll be clothed with a new understanding and a new love. 
But we can also enter into this dark night with the understanding of Abraham, to unite our faith and our understanding together that whatever we grip onto, whatever that ring that we hold onto, that we refuse to give up, that God is going to give us something even greater on the other side if we're willing to sacrifice it, if we're willing to give it up. St. John the Cross has a great line. He says that the love of God and the cross must go together because Christ himself was not without his cross, even to the point of death. He said, God ordains that our sufferings may be such that we, what we love most and what we desire most comes about through our sacrifices. But everything is brief, for it lasts only until the knife is raised. Then Isaac remains alive with the promise of a multiplied offspring. That in, in some sense, the hardest part of our, our sacrifices seems to be the trip up the mountain and the, and the raising of the knife as as St. John the Cross says. But everything is brief. That it lasts only that moment. And then something greater is given in return. That we realize that God gives us something greater. It's more than we could imagine. And of course, Abraham is traveling up this mountain and he thinks maybe I will have to kill my son. Maybe the promises will change, but I don't, I don't think so. I believe in God and I trust in God. But what ends up happening at the top of Mount Moriah, the transformation that takes place, is unlike, I think, anything that, that Abraham maybe would have guessed. Now, why does God ask these sacrifices of us? Why did he ask of this sacrifice from Abraham? Well, the reading says it, it's to put Abraham to the test. Maybe God is asking us to put our money where our mouth is. Maybe God is saying, show me with visible signs what you believe interiorly. Maybe that's it. But I believe that God asks us to sacrifice that which what that thing we love most, our Isaac, because it's an eternal law written in the cosmos. It's written into nature that the passion leads to the resurrection. That as our second reading says, God did not spare his only son. So why should we not do what God himself does? If Christ is the pattern of every human life, if he's the pattern of the universe, if he's, if he's the center of everything, if, if he's the word through which all things were created, that means that Christ's actions become the archetype of every individual. And even Jung points this out, that this may even include our own spiritual sacrifice. There seems to be a, a universal law, an archetypal law, something that, that just is ingrained in us that in order for there to be new life, death must occur. Rebirth, death, resurrection, transformation, all these things, sacrifice, all these things are, are bound together. That I don't think God is doing this because he's cruel or just to see if, if we'll do it or, again, even a testing. But it's, this is part and parcel of life. That Christ, the logos of the universe, the logic of the universe, the meaning of the universe, the archetype of everything. If he suffered so as to be transformed, so too you must suffer to be transformed. You must sacrifice to be transformed. So on the topic of transformation, I want to touch briefly on the gospel. It's the gospel of the transfiguration that we get from Mark. It's a packed gospel. I'm not going to get too much into it um, because I feel like I've already talked for a long time. It has a lot of Old Testament background. But uh, Christ takes, but Christ takes 
Peter, James, and John up the mountain. So we have some archetypal imagery there of going up the ascension up the mountain because mountains are places of of divine communication, that they're, they're places of, of where heaven and earth meet. Again, we've talked, talked before about the center of the earth and how the mountain, the cosmic mountain, is the center of the world where heaven and earth touch, where heaven and earth communicate. There, they're at the top of the mountain, and Christ is transformed before them. The meta, it's basically in the Greek, the metamorphosis. So it's a change, a meta, change, morphe, uh, of form. Morphe means form. So although in the ancient world, metamorphosis was kind of well, well known of people or divine beings changing, what's happening here is we're getting a glimpse of Christ's divine form, the, the, the thing underneath kind of the, the cloth, the clothing of, of flesh or of humanity. And there appears Moses and Elijah. Moses, the archetype of the law, the symbol of the law, and Elijah, the symbol of the prophets. So the three of them together, the law and the prophets, I think, are supposed to show how law and prophets meets the middle person, the gospel, who unites the two of them, brings about the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Moses and Elijah both are people who received God's revelation and, and communication on mountains. You have Moses going up the mountain to receive the law and communion with God on Sinai. You have Elijah in at Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb. Uh, speaking to God. And so again, here you have Christ fulfilling both of those in his transfiguration. You also have this strange phrase where Peter says, let's make three tents for you, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. This is a reference to uh, the perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the glory of God dwelling in tents. Deeper symbolism, I want to talk about the idea I just mentioned of passion leading to glory. We don't get it here in Mark, but in Matthew's gospel, we hear that Moses and Elijah were conversing with Jesus about his passion, about Christ's upcoming passion. In Mark, we just get that they were conversing. So part of the transfiguration is the idea that glory is the fruit of grace. The grace that Jesus possessed is showing through. That's normally the apostles could not see it. But in this moment, he's transfigured to show his glory. But something similar also happens to us. Grace will transform us, as St. Paul says, from glory to glory. But while grace transfigures, sin darkens and disfigures us. So part of today's gospel is to say that there's a close connection between the transfiguration and the passion. Christ is, is telling his apostles, he's, he's showing his disciples that it is impossible for them, and it's impossible even for himself, to reach the glory of transfiguration without passing through the sufferings and sacrifices he's going to make. That what has been disfigured by sin cannot regain its original beauty except by purifying suffering. If we wish to be transfigured, the, you know, St. John of the Cross is emphatic about this. The, the top of the summit of Mount Carmel, the summit of, of our spiritual lives, is union with God, to become godlike, to be deified, have a, a transformation of our form, right? Our, our, we'll always remain human, but by grace, we can become more than human. We can become like God. We can participate in God. But in order to do that, in order to become like God, 
sacrifice is necessary. Suffering is necessary. Even the good things must be sacrificed. So in our spiritual journey up Mount Moriah or up Mount Tabor, to be transfigured at the top, we offer sacrifice at the top of that mountain to be transfigured. We offer all the bad things of our life, but we also offer the good things so that we can be clothed with a new understanding as the apostles were. Peter, James, and John had a new understanding of Christ at the top of the mountain, at the ascension. They were given a new revelation. We too can be, we too can experience that. However, sacrifice is necessary in order to achieve that new revelation. I think I'll stop there for today. I've talked for a while. Remember, if there's anything you want to ask me or anything you'd like me to talk about, you can email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on the on my YouTube, and I will respond there or make it an episode. Either way, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.